A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to duck and cover when the wind of myth blows through the threads of history. The podcast that authorises a full preemptive strike on everything we get wrong. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I am here with a fellow librarian of Livid, Kyle Glover. Hello. Uh, you can have, forgive the voices, listeners. Uh, we have, at the time of recording, kind of just got back from the Chalk Valley History Festival, where between myself, Kyle and Rory, we performed 31 shows over the course of a week. So do forgive us if we are a little bit hoarse. Dear Edgers, we're stepping back to the recent past, to a time during my own lifetime. So I'm not really convinced this is history. I am prepared to accept that my childhood is retro, possibly even vintage, or dare I say classic but I am not ready to admit that it's historical yet. But I digress. This week, we are joined by the curator of Hack Green's secret nuclear bunker and Museum of Nuclear Civil Defence, Lucy Siebert. Lucy, welcome to History Rage. Hi. That was a very happy intro. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like trying to lead with some positivity because uh, if I don't start start positive, then I don't think we'll ever make it through this. Just like most of the people at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's going to get very depressing very quickly. So we've been friends for some years now because you were the first venue to give our living history group some Cold War events. And we've treated your museum as pretty much a holiday home ever since. So thank you very much. But for the rest of our listener base out there, can you give us a taste of your background and, and how the hell you ended up in a nuclear bunker? So it's kind of a funny story, I suppose. Um, most people, when they kind of like book something to meet me, don't expect like a 30 something year old girl to turn up when they're looking for like a bunker person. And that's partly because uh, I've been here since I was six. Um, this is kind of like a family business. My dad set it up. Uh, we will be 25 years next year. So essentially, uh, my dad bought it because. He'd always wanted a nuclear bunker, the way that he would describe it. Uh, it's kind of a, a gl okay. glorified shed, as you will. 
used it for some communications uh, and then we had like a really big like space left and mum said why don't you open that as a museum and a year later they did. I've been running it now for 10 years which seems a bit crazy and um, yeah I, so I kind of grew up with clear history and with sort of civil defence history even though uh, I kind of missed most of the good bits. Uh, I was actually born on the day the Berlin Wall came down and share a very famous birthday. <laughs> yeah, with me. Although yeah. <laughs> so I, I was some significant years earlier, I will stay. Yeah, we're, we're like birthday twins. Since then, I've been trying to make the bunker better and, you know, I've kind of gone on all sorts of sidetracks of doing a film degree and then doing a heritage degree uh, we're like a master's, and now I'm in the process of trying to rewrite the guidebook, which, again, the more I research nuclear war, the more depressing it gets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for those out there, for part of my research in something that we're doing, Lucy has very kindly loaned me the emergency planning guidance for Cheshire, and I can't read it for more than about 20 minutes before before I have to go and put it in the freezer. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, reading The Medical Effects of Nuclear War, which was provided by the uh, British Medical Association as a response to uh, the government guidance. An absolute uh, page turner, I'm sure, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I mean, if you want to stay up late at night, like riddled with nuclear anxiety and existential crisis, then uh, it's the right thing for you to read. <laughs> or I could just watch When the Wind Blows. You know, like, I think... I think I've seen When the Wind Blows, like I watched that when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> Explains and, a lot. Yeah, I had the war game and threads. And uh, I can tell you now, it's one thing seeing it like fictionalised. It's definitely reading the actual government memos and the home office information and seeing what they really thought they were going to do. Um, it's so chilling, I think, seeing it in, in actuality. Well, while we're on the subject then of government memos and that sort of paperwork, that neatly segues us into uh, the rage question. So for our history ragers out there, Lucy, will you please tell us what you wish people would just get over? So my rage is that Protect and Survive isn't shit. Um, and and the same for kind of all of British civil defence, like nuclear planning I get the question. I get the sentence all the time. We're all going to die anyway, so what's the point? That's like so negative. <laughs> okay, so so yeah, we, we're going to feed some some questions into this. But do you want to give our history ragers, particularly people like you who were born after the Cold War, and people who like Kyle were kind of what? Not even one. Negative when the Berlin two. Wall came down. Yeah, well, negative. Yeah, one. Negative two. Yeah, one and negative two for people you know. Yeah, yeah. Can you give us an idea then of what Protect and Survive is? Let's let's talk about that one. So uh, most people think of Protect and Survive as one of two things. Either they instantly think of the TV program, kind of insert insert interesting jingle here. <laughs> um, so yeah, they either think of the the TV program or they think of the booklet. It was actually. Uh, kind of a comprehensive campaign of uh, radio and television and handbook and newspaper coverage that they'd all planned, designed by the Central Office of Information to prepare 
people at home for nuclear attack. Um, it has been much derided and I would say, including like historians that know what they're talking about, that, uh, that they think it's like a pile of crap because it was really, it was kind of like the cartoons, are, are little sweet cartoons of how to bury a granny, you know, if she's been in the house for 10 days. And then the booklets really, it is really basic information. So it's kind of how to build a shelter at home. It's like what happens when the bomb goes off. Um, it's very simple. Yeah, it's simple. It's diagrammatical. It's it's almost like an Between. IKEA manual for surviving a nuclear war. Which seems crazy. Um, and, and I get that. That's kind of like, I can completely see why people wouldn't buy into it, particularly now. You need to remember that obviously it's slightly different now. We're in a society that's significantly less compliant than it was, you know, 50 years ago. But I would say that the reason that Protect and Survive and kind of like British civil defence in general isn't a pile of rubbish is that there is a purpose to it. It's just not necessarily the purpose that people think. So there is some protection, very little, but there is some. So there's that element of it. There are enough people in the kind of outer blast area where their main risk is going to be initially, the first initial risk is going to be like blast, burns and flying glass. There would be very little protection, but some protection from fallout. They they did loads of modelling to work out how much. But unfortunately, they didn't model the fact that repeated blasts would increase your exposure. So there's kind of like the... The element on a, a really practical way that it would give you some protection, uh, the best that they could advise based on the information that they had. There's the case for it's keeping your mind and people busy. I think we all know that there's a lot to be said mm-hmm. doing something on, on like a individual basis rather than doing nothing. I would definitely argue that there's a, a that they're partly preparing you for nuclear attack and also kind of preparing you for future compliance yeah i i feel like there might be an element of that in yeah. there and for those of you out there that you know are still uh, a wash in the dark for for what we're talking about here i'm gonna put there's link to the um pdf of protect and survive so you can actually have a look at the leaflet and there is also all of the i think there were is it 21 public service information films uh, of Protect and Survive that you can now watch yeah. on YouTube and I'm going to put a link up to those as well. And you can, you can see, and if you, you know, if you're still completely confused, stop listening, go watch these, come back. Uh, and then you'll see exactly what we're, what we're talking about. I mean, it was designed in like, a lot of people think it was a Thatcher thing, uh, but it actually it, it was designed in 1975. Uh, all it was is that it was secret for a while. It was, designed to to not be actually released to the public until kind of quite late specifically they said until a a relatively late stage Mm. of crisis although they weren't entirely sure about the rollout of there wasn't supposed to be anything after an attack because quote tv tv may not be available (laughs) and there was lots of criticism because also the plan to just distribute this thing so they worked out to print it and distribute it 
would have been about what is in today's money, six million pounds, which when you're already preparing for imminent war is kind of, where's the money going to come from? That was five times the budget anyway. Okay, well, let's let's get into examining um, Protect and Survive a little bit then. So we'll kick off, Carl, with the the first question. So let's look at some of the details here. What is there what actually is there in Protect and Survive that you think might have actually made in a different made a difference to ordinary people? So I think you've got to also think about it in terms of what people would be facing. One of the biggest misconceptions about nuclear war, unless you've watched things like Threads, is exactly what it would look like. People don't think about the fact that um apart from there being a big boom, you know, there's earthquakes all of the the forests and uh, woods would get burnt up and you'd have like a nuclear winter. There's going to be people, I mean, there's literally millions of people burning to death. So the kind of, what they're trying to face is insane odds. So Protect and Survive isn't designed to entirely protect you from nuclear attack. That's a bit of a weird thing to say. It, it is partly, like it's it's based on all of their modelling, on all of their scientific modelling and all of the, the tests and everything that they did uh, to try and give you the very best chance. But of course, you're trying to make something that's simple that anybody can understand. That's why people laugh at laugh it because it's so simple. But like, you don't know if you're going to be somebody that's not educated. You could be a child. They don't, everybody needs to be able to understand it. And of course, the more simplified the information becomes, the less effective yeah. it becomes. You know, if you gave everybody the information of how to build a concrete permanent bunker in the back garden, like no one would have the uh, materials or the expertise to do that. That's not actually useful. So some of the usefulness is its simplicity. Some of the stuff as well is is kind of general helpful information for any kind of emergency so one of my top tips for everybody in the if they're in an emergency is did you know that when you run out of uh, safe drinking water you can take it out the back of the back of your system in your toilet handy handy and uh, you know i i can see yeah. i can see why grant keeps hold of you yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> just me drinking from the toilet like a dog <laughs> um but there are there are things in it like and i'm particularly thinking of the the information films here when it says like when the siren goes up do things like um turn off your fire turn off the gas at the mains the one that everybody laughs at close the curtains you know yeah but where like this flying glass you know a curtain between you and the flying glass is better than nothing like this this the the point of protect and survive is it's it's literally better than mm-hmm. nothing. Although having said that, there was a, an argument about that. Uh, so when the government brought out their plans for the healthcare after a nuclear attack, which is crazy, the the British Medical Association had a big sort of like argument about it and kind of divided into two camps. Uh, one camp said, this is woefully inadequate. We're going to write our own version and we're going to tell you how you're wrong and we're going to give you a new set of instructions. The other camp said, every penny of taxpayer money we spend preparing for nuclear war is wasted on the people who are living now. So we shouldn't do anything. We should have no response yeah. at all. And it's like, you know, can you imagine if 
in in like our most recent national emergency during like COVID, if the government had like gone away, crunched the numbers, and then came back and said, you know what, we've looked at it, and if we pro- if we do something, it's going to make everybody poor, it's going to affect the healthcare, it's going to make going to affect crime it's going to have all these like ripple effects out so we've decided that what we're going to do is nothing except tell you to wash your hands Mm. can you imagine what the public response would be it's been it's like people have argued enough as it is now and this is covid can you imagine if it's nuclear war and, and the government had had looked at the the insurmountable task that it is to prepare for nuclear war and were just like nah (laughs) <laughs> so so yeah so kind of you have to do something and and that same thing goes down to an individual basis you know every lots of people i think this kind of like oh well we're going to die anyway so what's the point extends into a kind of like well you know i would just have a party or i would just like run towards the bomb like i'm somebody that literally could go and shelter in a bunker and i always used to say you know what? I don't know if I'd want to survive. Like I wouldn't. I don't know anyone who would. Anybody who wants to survive a nuclear attack doesn't know what it's like afterwards. But people underestimate that. Like we're like cockroaches. We survive everything, and our will to survive is stronger than we think. Yeah, we've we've proved that with human history. I mean, even in their like worst case scenarios, they were like planning to have like. 40% of the population survive the initial 14 days, you know, and then you might end up after cancer and hypothermia and disease and starvation and dehydration and genetic abnormalities and infant mortality 20 years down the, route, the, the line with like a very small population, but it wouldn't be none. Like yeah. there, would, there wouldn't be no people living on the UK at the end of this. Yeah, and that kind of leads us in to one of the questions that we've got coming a little later on. So might might hold the rest of the answer for that. I mean, this is about giving you the, the, the best possible chance that you can have. But I would like to draw your attention to one of my particular favourite flaws in, in, in Protect and Survive. And again, for somebody who's... I mean, people say, oh, it, yeah, I remember it coming through the door. It didn't. But it did in our house because my parents actually got a copy. They ordered one. So it does have some serious flaws. My favourite of which is the inner refuge. Uh, And that is that you find a room in your house that doesn't have any external wall to it. It has no contact with the outside. Now, I'm a reasonably affluent guy. And I've never lived in a house ever and i'm on my fifth house that would actually have have a room that you could use as the inner refuge stroke fallout shelter that that protection survive is seems to be entirely based around hey have you <laughs> what, <laughs> so, what the hell's so, going on here i mean who's writing this and what sort of life are they leading where they think this is common so apart from MPA, you hit on one of my mini rages about Protect and Survive, which is people who remember seeing it on the television or remember it coming through the door. So some people, you're right, ordered that you could, in towards the end, 
after it kind of got leaked and everything in like 1980 after that point you could you could buy it the government released it and you could buy it and order it but it was actually never meant to go out to the public it was supposed to be like secret until we needed it like when it first was printed they only printed 2000 in the first run there was there were three for each local authority <laughs> The county emergency planning officer got one, and so did like chief of police. But kind of, it 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 never really went anywhere. It was only it only was like leaked kind of like a little bit later on. So yeah, that's definitely something I get quite a lot. But yeah, you, you're quite right um, that there is an issue with that. The Home Office themselves, so they they have this thing called uh, PF protective factor, and that's how you assess how protective the structure is that you're in whether it be a house or a bunker so to give you an idea of a scale uh, like if you built a bunker at home in your gone so you're like a, a like a private bunker just like this one but a tiny one you're talking about 300 plus pf uh, a car is 1.5 so it's how lot how much it's going to protect you not just from the blast but from fallouts yeah. as well so they worked out that the average pf for the UK was 21. But at the same time, like they said, 7% of homes would have one above 70. So bearing in mind, a bunker is 300. Yeah. And the average, so if you, and, the, and based on the, were the the average PF within different countries, because it changes wherever you are in the world or wherever you are, which, which country you're in, they can then work out roughly how many casualties there are. So for the 21 that we thought that we had, that's about 25.1 million. But of course, if they get that wrong and we've actually got a PF of four, it's 30.6 million, which kind of will make a big difference to that five million people. Yeah. And yeah, that's actually one of the things that's contended a lot is that the modeling that the government used for how protective houses are wasn't effective. And also it didn't take into account kind of like damage, like after it's been damaged or things like what if your structure is fine, but your windows break, things things like that. And it's kind of, yeah, there's a there's an element of that. And also it's reliant on you being compliant. Yeah. You know, all of this is based on every, all of the home office plans and all of their numbers are based on society complying with protect and survive and i don't know about you but i don't know how many people i know that would like go home and be like yes i'm going to undo my doors and build a shelter <laughs> well i live in you know one of the what was known as a nuclear free zone where Leeds city council at the time very kind of old style labor council and just it wasn't having any of it it, it was very much kind kind of going back to your original rage point of it was unsurvivable, so there's absolutely no point. You know, you you ask why, and if the government just go looks at that task and goes, "No," well, that's what Leeds City Council did, and uh, and in quite a few others, it's a really interesting pamphlet they put out called Leeds in the Bomb because all the contact information for further information is it's the local CND branches, which I thought was <laughs> thought was absolutely laughable. So it's interesting that in December 1975, when they when they were making Protect and Survive, they did actually test it. So they're like, well, we'll test to see if this actually works. And part of that was that it was taken, it was like given to local authorities to test so that they would like, so that it was kind of like supposed to be like a community action. 
and they specifically didn't test it in the places that became nuclear-free zones because they wouldn't be considered compliant councils. And I enjoyed that one of the ones that they tested it in was Sheffield. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, famously atomized Um, in threads. And they even, like, it's things like they noted, like, how they gave different topics to different people. So, for example, they gave gathering provisions to women, just women, and building a shelter to just men. Uh, And then there's a little note that's, like, scribbled by a home office reviewer saying, like, why? Women may have to do it. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But yeah, and and they just, uh, so they kind of, even when they tested it to see if it worked, they only tested it based on whether you could retain the information, not whether you could actually build a shelter. Yeah. So, so yeah, there are lots of flaws. But if, you're, if your principle is just, we're going to give people something so that they feel safer, so that they get busy, so that some of the stuff they're doing might actually kind of, make them less likely to be injured. I mean, that is worth noting that in terms of their propositions for your survival, if you are injured in two or more ways, you are assumed to die. Uh, In the same way that if you have built your shelter perfectly and unfortunately it survived the rubble, but the rubble around it didn't and you're trapped, you are just assumed dead because you won't survive. Comforting thought. Mm. So, but for all of that, like, you know, if instead of injuring yourself in two ways, you've only injured yourself in one way because, you know, you didn't get your arm sliced by glass. Like, you know, it's make, it's, that, it's kind of like the old adage of the, the guy walking down the beach throwing the starfish back into the sea, you know, and the guy says, you know, there's hundreds, why, why, why does it matter? You know, and the guy says, well, it matters to this one. Yeah, that's, that's a fair analogy. Yeah, so given this was all put together in 1975, but didn't get leaked and started to be published until the 80s, how out of date was the advice? Um, could they have done a better job by updating it? So it's quite funny because the, if you, you want to look at like out of date nuclear advice, look at what it, its predecessors. Um, so the kind of first nuclear pamphlet for the public was uh, Civil Defence and the Atom Bomb. And it's kind of like everything we knew about World War II applied to nuclear weapons, which really doesn't work. <laughs> Things like, you know, you should evacuate and all, all sorts of like really nice kind of blitz spirit things. And it's it's kind of more useless, <laughs> significantly more useless. Um, and kind of like they got a bit better. Like we had advising the householder on protection against nuclear attack in the 60s. Uh, which is the one that features in the war game, you know, and who knows, as we speak, somewhere sitting on some civil servant's desk could be like, uh, you know, 2022, uh, you and the bomb. (laughs) Mm. We're always developing information stuff in the government level. And they're trying to, it's, it's a very big job to design something and commission it in enough time that, the technology doesn't change. If you look at Operation Rotor, which is uh, which radar was a radar operation that we had at the bunker, that was extremely expensive. The aim was to protect uh, Britain against Soviet uh, nuclear bombers, and it took so much time and money and effort to commission that it only ran for a very short time. Because in that time, 
the Russians have developed kind of inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles. So you are quite right that it it's like it's like they always say with all technology, the moment that you bring it out, it's outdated. Yeah. And there's there's always an element of that. But I would definitely say that the because it's based on basic survival principles, some of those last. And the point of emergency planning is it's supposed to be applicable. Like these are specifically protecting survivors for nuclear war, but the bunker and everything we do is for emergency. And I don't know about you, but if you've last time I watched threads, uh, I've watched threads post COVID and the early run up bit was all the scarier, the earlier run up bit of threads, because when they're saying, you know, stay at home, like the stay at home message was a really big part of the nuclear civil defense response. Um, So that's the thing is like, we're doing the same thing now for something that's like, a completely different threat, you know, and we would have, there's lots of those transferable skills. I am pretty sure that if you can build a shelter or you can plan a, um, what you might need, that's going to come in handy if you get flooded and you can't get to where you need to go. We were uniquely positioned to know what to do during COVID when you couldn't go out and you couldn't do things anymore because, you know, like I, I, I went out shopping before lockdown was announced because I knew it was coming. Not because like Boris called me up and was like, hey, Hat Green Bunker, you need to know this thing. <laughs> but I, I know how emergency planning works and kind of lots of it doesn't change. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the disaster that changes, not really the 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 response to it. In terms of could they have done a better job, that's the bit that everybody likes to argue about, and particularly academics and scientists, and a lot of them, and a lot of CND people and people involved with that, strongly felt that the modelling was incorrect, and that the approach in general was kind of nicer than the actuality would be you know all the numbers were better we were supposed to survive longer and have more people survive and less burns and all that kind of thing but the big thing that certainly in terms of our like medium and long-term survival the one thing that scientific modeling doesn't seem to ex sort of expect is how completely ruthless post-nuclear war government is there's a kind of assumption that some normality of of morality and everyday life would exist and that is not the government that we have then that is not what that world is like so people often paint protect and survive and british nuclear defense as naive it's not naivety it's like ruthless pragmatism so they they knew people weren't going to survive. They knew what was happening. They just prepared for not the protection of the people, but the protection of the state. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. How much of nuclear civil defense is based around the survival of the government and not the survival of the people? All of it, I would argue. Obviously, uh, you need... You, you would hope that some people survive, and we know that some people would survive. And you design all of this so that there's enough to perpetuate and rebuild Britain. But they, the government used to exist in a state of exception. So that means it's except from the, you know, it's like away from the populace mm-hmm. that the design is to maintain the state at any cost because of course they believed that uh, after an attack or after any emergency because that's kind of what we learn is that uh, you can make more people you can grow more food once you lose the kind of fabric of society and a semblance of government uh, and governance like that's very hard to rebuild Uh, If you think about all the societies where they overthrew all of their government, um, they replaced it with something, but it took them, it it takes a long, once you completely burn down the government, it takes a while to kind of rebuild and every day. And that's on the basis that you've got all your people. If you haven't got all your people, they're going to be disparate and terrified and starving and dying. So they're not going to be like, you know, kind of signing up to be the next prime minister uh, there needs to be a an, an infrastructure there to kind of tell them what to do that's kind of what it's about mm. and when i say they would go to any extent i mean really they would go to any extent example uh, so there was a there was a an exercise called exercise regenerate in which they decided that the psychological demands would be too high for the population. So they experimented with different ways of augmenting what's left. One of them is like martial law and bringing back the death penalty for people who don't comply. And one of them was that they said that psychopaths, due to their lack of empathy and lack of uh, sort of qualms about using violence, would make excellent recruits for the police and agents of control. So they decided that they would specifically hire psychopaths to be the people who control what would be the remaining workforce because that's that is the thing that people don't seem to expect is that we are not a population we are a workforce <laughs> yeah yeah i've read you that cannot work you do not survive yeah i've read that in the planning guidelines there is this subtle change from population to to labor force basically which is which is chilling to to read yeah I mean, there are specific things that re- re- that say that as there's going to be no viable agriculture for, for a while, remember, we've got nuclear winter, it's going to be pretty cold out there. So what 
minimum food stocks we've got will only be given to obedient workers, uh, police and military. So that's the kind of weird thing is, can you imagine being in a situation where that, that's the kind of proof that it's about the state and not population? Mm-hmm. Because, of course, people always say that hopefully in the best society, it's built around protecting the most vulnerable, not just the people who are the most useful. And uh, a post-nuclear war, that's not the case. It's if if you're injured or anything, I mean, that shows up in uh, maternity care. Maternity care has a preference for the mother because the mother can make more children. A sick infant isn't any use to you. Uh, you know, it's a kind of, uh, as I said, ruthless pragmatism to the point where, you know, it, the be if you could if you can work, then great and if you can't unless you are a child and being prepared to work then you won't get food and you just will not survive whoa that's a comforting thought yeah yeah For those of you <laughs> listening to this on general release happy christmas everybody there we go yeah yeah it's, it's nice that you know you might be able to feel a little bit of that nuclear winter just to start rounding things off um and to end on a bit of a lighter note, um, why has this set of public information films, amongst hundreds and hundreds of others, had such a cut-through that they're still around today? So I think, uh, apart from the fact that they're so... Because they're, e- they're designed to be easy to understand, they're very easy to mock, because it's mm. so sort of, like, fun and twee and nice and kind of has such a weird... It's a really weird way of looking at nuclear war yeah. like i there like are I was, smiling a, drawings of people r- shrink wrapping their dead relatives yeah so the bit that always makes me laugh is there's a bit where um he's supposed to be brushing like fallout off himself and he's got like a little stick figure and the hands just like flick like fallout off his body <laughs> like and it always makes me laugh at like how weirdly absurd it is that just this little stick figure flicking off the fallout, <laughs> um, and and that that's like the like British sense of humour is is quite dark. We love a bit of dark humour, and I don't think this this gets like humour gets any darker than than like you know the inevitable death from horrible nuclear warfare through you yeah. know and and. And I think that that bit of it, like the specific way it was done, that was really appeared to be really childish, I think, has appealed to people as like a bit of uh, bit of fun. You've got to remember that, like, it came in a time where it was like sandwiched, like it was on the tail end of that kind of generation that had a blitz spirit into a new generation that was all like, we're not going to do the government says they're not in our best interest and. That's definitely even more so now. I mean, if you think in uh, Where the Wind Blows, there's always the bit where uh, the guy is like building his shelters and doing all the right things. And he rings his son in the city and said, like, are you building your shelter? And he's like, no. And he almost he laughs. He, he like, laughs at him as like, you know, you must be stupid. That's the thing. That's one thing that really frustrates me about this is that the implication is that you're stupid if you follow it. Mm. But like... People would be so scared. But yeah, because it's kind of like, it is kind of funny. I get that it's weirdly funny. And that's why people like it. And I think nuclear war doesn't get old. Like, unfortunately, it seems to continue to go around in cycles of getting ever more present. 
And nuclear anxiety in and of itself is kind of like such an individual experience. And it's such a sort of constant but distant fear. It's like it, it might happen, but it probably won't. That's how lots of us feel. But it's never gone. Like hmm. the fear's never entirely gone. And kind of what we do with it and what we generally, and particularly in Britain, what we do with that, that anxiety or worry of something is we make it funny. Like it's that kind of gallows humour. And, you know, when you look at the people who are here and you talk to them, like it was like I researched this. I can't imagine being a person writing these things, making these decisions and knowing what was going on. And it must have been horrible. But like they used to like have a great time. Like my dad used to be in the Royal Observer Corps and like when you when they were in their little bunkers, they would have been the first people to die. I mean, you're literally volunteers hiding in a tiny bunker, at which point when the bomb goes off, you go up a chute and take a thing out of a tin. It's strangely terrifying. But like when you talk to him about it, he has like these really fond memories of how my mum used to wrap a, a bacon sandwich in greaseproof paper and send it down the post to him. <laughs> <laughs> I would say more than anything, particularly, if you think too hard about this, if you think even slightly too much about this, it's so difficult. Like I've I've been doing this for a long time and I thought I was immune to being depressed by nuclear threat. And like, even it gets me sometimes. It's yeah. like really tough. So, so you laugh at it. Because that's what we do. That's and that's kind of how we've always had like a little bit of that in the bunker. You know, we've got a spy mouse trail, so you can search for the spy mice, or we've got you know goulash the bunker cat, and everyone likes to pet the cat because it's it, it's it's too much. Otherwise, it's just way too much to kind of properly face it. So yeah. I think that that's why people like protect and survive is because you can just like quite easily laugh at it, and then if you laugh at it, it feels like it's not scary. So. A lot of protest and criticism at the time from organizations like CND and every other protest organization, they they said that gay, they objected to it because they said that giving the idea that nuclear war is survivable would make it more likely. Was it survivable? So I've got a really good quote for you that I found from, uh, they, they released a pamphlet, which was Civil Defense, Why We Need It, uh, in 1981 and that question was actually at the asked was the question was asked does thinking about nuclear war make it more likely or does preparing for it make it more likely and he said that is like saying people who wear seat belts are expecting to have more crashes than those who do, who do not taking civil defense seriously means seeking to save lives in the catastrophe of an attack on our country civil defense is common sense Oh, good lord! That's that's a wartime poster right there, isn't it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> the 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 simple answer to to the question of is it survivable is yes, but but definitely the question that nobody asks enough is like, do you want to? Like, people know that there's going to be kind of no food and no hospitals and no schools and no television. And, and no, no nothing yeah. <laughs> basically nothing forced labor kind of, anarchy yeah but people don't think about the subtle things that we'll miss there'll be no pets 
There's going to be no magazines. There's going to be no Love Island. That's probably a good yeah, thing. That's, that's probably There's going to be no thing. History Rage podcasts. There's going to be no films or all the little tiny textures of life that that we've become accustomed to. Mm. And, uh, and, and music, you know, can you imagine that the last piece of music that you listen to might be the only piece of music that you listen to the rest of your life? Or the last book that you read? Yeah. The next book you might read might be 10 years down the line when you find one that's got most of its pages left. Yeah. What a terrifying thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and also, yeah, I mean, you guys, you're historians. Can you imagine that museums are gone? Can you imagine that almost all of our important artifacts are dust? Well, to be fair, I mean, I went for, through lockdown. I mean, the simple fact that I couldn't go to a museum for, what, five weeks? drove me up the wall but yeah we are so. we are going to put we, we are going to put all the episodes of history rage on uh, on cd now and deposit them at the bottom of your bunker yep yep sounds like a plan <laughs> <laughs> and then uh you know future generations will know what they should have been cross about yeah absolutely they, they shall know what what we have forgotten civilization got wrong <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Lucy. That's that's taken on a fair few myths and uh, and reminded me of a substantially terrifying time to be alive. And for those of you out there that weren't, it was really scary, especially when you were 11. You know, that threat was real. But if you'd like to know more about this subject, then first and foremost, you can start by visiting Hat Green Nuclear Bunker in Cheshire. We've done a short video on some of the things that you can see there, and we'll have links to both Hat Green and our video in the show notes. And don't forget, you can follow Lucy on Twitter at The Bunker Lady. So once again, thank you very much for, for coming on uh, with a really, really harsh subject. That's okay, you know, and just remember, civil defence is common sense. It is. Okay. So just just do what the government says. Never, never. <laughs> So, ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can subscribe to us on Patreon, which really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, three months in advance, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.